Well, ever since uh, I knew I was going to speak on this topic, love, can it be trusted or can you trust it, uh, I, I kept having a line of a Larry Norman song go through my mind. Now, some of you know Larry, who Larry Norman is. He was the first Christian rock star, uh, <laughs> grew his hair long to let, make room for his brain. Um, <laughs> others of you, that's one of his lines, one, others of you uh, won't know him, but trust me. And uh, in one of his songs, um, he has this line, the Beatles said, all you need is love, and then they broke up. Uh, so I kept going through my mind over and over again. And that's, that's the thing about love. It's risky. It's risky. And, and I think marriage is a good example of, of this risk. The journey with the other person is... Um, is a source of endless novelty and, and discovery. <laughs> and therein lies the risk. <laughs> There's a theologian named John Caputo, though, who, who reminds us this. He says, when you get married, you are saying, I do, not only to the, who the person is or who you think this person is, but to whomever or whatever this person is going to become which is unknown and unforeseen by both of you. Pretty profound. It's a beautiful risk that is part of the vow or commitment you make, he says. And as he puts it, it is the willingness to go forward even though the way is not certain that leads us to describe it as beautiful. In other words, when someone makes a, a marriage vow, he or she is being asked, will you love the person that this man or woman will become 30, 40, 50 years from now. Or I guess if you're a Kardashian, will you love this man two months from now? <laughs> That's the risk. I, I think the risk was eloquently phrased in a card that I gave Trevecca on our honeymoon. It went like this. True love is not like making out in a parked car and the guy runs out of gas and the girl says she loves him. It's years later when they are making out in the living room and he runs out of gas and she still says she loves him. <laughs> if, that doesn't, if that doesn't illustrate the risk of love, I don't know what does. Rebecca said the other night that Actually, it became true, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but it's not true that that's the best illustration of risk because there, there probably isn't a better example of the risk that love takes other than what Mary said, I do. When she said, I do, to God in this text from Luke's gospel today, she took an incredible risk. And as we'll see, she takes on an incredible risk when she, when she agrees to partner with God so that Jesus can accomplish his mission. But before we unpack that situation, we need to ask why anyone like Mary would, would make such a pledge. And I think part of the answer lies in our Old Testament text where God made a covenant with King David. And it's echoed again in the psalm that we read together. God promises David that his family will be established forever, a dynasty, a kingdom, a throne forever. 
And all Jewish expectations of the coming Messiah were fed in one way or another by this text in, in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 was the flame, was fuel for the flame of the messianic hope that burned through the centuries, especially during the exile of Israel. This eternal rulership of the house of David. And so we hear in Luke's account of the promise given to Mary's child these words, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But that had been a long time in coming. A long time in coming. Israel had waited and while she waited, at times she was out of fellowship with God. At times she was oppressed by foreign rule. At times she found herself in exile. And I'm sure she asked, could God be trusted? Would he keep his promise? Where was this God who claimed Israel for his bride? So beautifully expressed by Hosea and the Song of Songs. A bride he claimed to love, even when Israel was a whore. Well, the temptation, I'm sure, for Israel would have been to, to take her definition of love, the temptation for us is to take our definition of love and to rate God's character on that basis. The temptation would be to say, love is God. But that gets the equation wrong. You see, John got it right in his first letter. God is love. The word love doesn't come with a definition. The mistake that many people make is to want to define what is loving on their own terms and then make God a player in that equation. And if you do that, you can end up justifying just about anything that we humans call a loving act. But because the correct equation is God is love, the word is given a definition by who God is, by God's character, and by God's acts. In other words, the covenant-keeping God defines the word love. Which, by the way, is why Christian marriages are to be covenant-keeping to reflect the character of the God to whom we pledge allegiance. And, and if that is what love is, then that is a love you can trust. Even if circumstances seem to contradict the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel. Now, no doubt the people to whom God made this promise often grew cynical just as many do in our culture today, cynical about love so that we live in a world of prenups and, and scams and, and irritation over people like, you know, Tebow. Can't be true. But then, for Israel, after centuries of waiting, the most unlikely thing happened. Initiated by this God who defines love, as God intervenes in human history, once again, he comes in and he wants to usher in this everlasting kingdom. And what makes it so unlikely is that he enlists the help of a young woman 
probably 12, maybe 13 years old. The typical age of betrothal in Jewish circles at that time was a young woman about the age of one of our sixth or seventh graders. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that he would enlist someone like this because in the second Samuel passage, God reminded David of his humble origins before he was raised as king over Israel. And throughout the biblical narrative, it is God who often chooses the powerless, the poor, the immigrant to get his job done. And now, here in Luke's opening chapter, God makes a surprising announcement to a very young girl who is inexperienced in sexual relations, who has no family pedigree that we know of. She's marrying into an important family. And who lives in Nazareth, an insignificant, despised little town. And she's poor. She's poor. We know that because Joseph and Mary will present... Jesus with turtle doves and pigeons for a sacrifice in the temple, which was the poor man's substitute for a lamb. So no wonder she's frightened. No wonder she's puzzled. I mean, the choice seems so inappropriate for for one who is seemingly so ill-suited for this task. And she's thinking, who, me? Yeah, you got the wrong person. Her resume is empty. I mean, with us, she wouldn't have even made it to an interview. But in the end, her qualifications will be availability and willingness to serve. And that is all that God needs. You and I can be significant players in the work, in God's work of redeeming people's lives. We don't need academic degrees. We don't need a financial portfolio. We don't need a family pedigree. We don't need to have a star on a sidewalk in Hollywood. We just need to be available and willing to serve. Because God will use even a tween to get his work done. And so Gabriel, God's angelic messenger, startles this young woman with a greeting that really should be translated this way, rejoice, favored one. Her name is favored one. But she's not chosen because she's favored. She is favored because she has been chosen. Let me say that again. Mary is chosen not because she is favored, but she is favored because she is chosen. You see, here's the kicker. To be chosen, to be one of the elect, is not for privilege. If you're chosen, it's for a task. It's not meant to lead to a life of ease or comfort if you're chosen. In fact, suffering and sorrow in your life does not mean that God has let you down. It may mean that God has chosen you for a special task. Just as Mary will discover, it is a dangerous and costly thing to be loved and chosen by God. 
We've got to get that in our heads at Christmas time. This isn't some syrupy, sentimental time. It is a dangerous and costly thing to be loved and chosen by God. In fact, Mary probably realizes this very quickly. She's betrothed, which by our accounts is she's married. She's legally joined to Joseph at this point. It's a relationship that could only be broken by death or divorce. In fact, if Joseph had died during this time of betrothal, she would have been referred to as a virgin widow. The bride price has been paid, and Mary is living with her parents for the obligatory year before the marriage would be consummated and made official. Betrothal was far more than what we think of as engagement. In fact, even though the marriage had not been consummated, pregnancy by another man during the betrothal would have been considered adultery for which Mary could be stoned to death. Her, um, her dangerous commission, you see, was to have a baby and then to name him Jesus, a child who would be destined for greatness. And she embraces the mission despite the risk. In fact, what is amazing is that unlike Abraham and Samuel and Isaiah who heard God call their names and who said, here am I, before they knew the details of their job, Mary says, I will after she learns the details of what is asked of. Her response to the commission sounds similar to Zechariah's response. If you know this story, Luke, Luke parallels Zechariah and Mary in this case. And, and in Luke's gospel, her question is, how can this be? And it seems to be a request for further information because later Elizabeth says that she believes. So it's not a sign of unbelief. But Zechariah's question, when he's told he will have a son, he says, how will I know? And we're told in Luke's gospel it was a sign of unbelief. Mary's response, you see, Mary's question is one of wonder. How will this be? Amazement. It's, much, it's not much different from uh, that of Abraham, you know, who when he asked, how was God going to give him progeny as numerous as the stars when he didn't even have a kid yet? And it's not much different from Gideon's response to God, wondering what God was up to when God ordered thousands of his soldiers to be dismissed, leaving Gideon with about 300 guys uh, carrying flashlights and bugles uh, to rouse the, the, the Midianites. And they wonder, how do you pull this off, God? You see, casual believers and skeptics don't wonder. Come Christmas Eve this week, casual skeptics and casual, uh, casual believers and skeptics will not wonder. The only people who wonder are people who believe. So Mary wonders, God, how, how are you going to carry this off? How are you going to fulfill this promise through me? And that's just what you'd expect, you see. You, you'd expect a person who has no experience, no preparation, no training for what God is asking her to do to ask for a few more details, right? 
And Gabriel doesn't tell her much more except to say, God will be with you. God will be with you on your journey. And her response is, she's willing to go for the ride. More than that, she'll be God's slave. Her identity is going to be wrapped up in the work and the will of God. And so she risks her very life for the God for whom no thing, or more accurately in the Greek text, no word is impossible. The proof is already there in the encouragement that Gabriel gives her because faith and wonder need to be nurtured. Faith and wonder need some fellowship. So Gabriel tells her about her cousin Elizabeth. That old barren woman, she's six months pregnant, Mary. If this can happen to Elizabeth and Zechariah, you know God can pull this off for Mary. And so Mary responds to this God for whom no word is impossible. Then may it be according to your word. And the question we're left with is this, how can Mary risk so much? How can Mary risk so much? She takes the risk of divorce, of social banishment, even of death, and that is the nature of discipleship. You answer the call, follow me, not knowing where you are going to end up three days down the pike in Jerusalem, or in Mary's case, what you're going to experience for 33 years of motherhood. How does she do it? How can she risk so much? Well, the answer is in our text. She's favored. She's loved. She's loved by a God who keeps his covenant promises. And when you are loved like that, when you are loved by a God who chooses you to partner with him in his redeeming work in people's lives, by a God who promises to stick with you as he sends you out on the mission to which he has called you, when you are loved by such a God, then you can take the risk. Even if, as Mary will find out a few decades later, her greatest joy in life will lead to her greatest sorrow, so much so that it will be like a sword piercing a mother's heart. I don't know, maybe Bono put it best. In fact, I think he put it better than the Beatles, Love is All You Need. In U2's song, Moment of Surrender, it's not that I believe in love, it's that love believes in me. God's love for the world created uh, an echo in the life of Mary in whose womb he brought life where there was none. For love begets love. But it will be risky. Mary's vulnerable. Her heart will break because she will risk her life out of love for the one whose love has changed her life. But that's the way it is with love. I can find no better words to express this than from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said this, Love anything 
and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Do you know that you are loved? As Phil Yancey put it so well, do you know that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less? You are one of the beloved And if you know you're beloved by God, then it's worth the risk to answer his call to you by responding, I do. To paraphrase what the Apostle Paul proclaims in his concluding words to the letter to the Romans that we read this morning, God's will for Mary is what his will is for all nations, that we might believe and obey him. And we can do that because we are beloved by a God we can trust. He will bring his plan to completion by the same spirit that spoke spoke through the prophet Nathan to David, by the same spirit that spoke through the angel Gabriel to Mary, by the same spirit that speaks to us today as we await his second advent, when God's plan for his creation will become a visible reality. So I leave you with questions this morning. Do you believe that God will bring to completion what he began in his plan to rescue and restore his creation. Do you believe that God will bring to completion the good work that he began in your life? Even if, like Mary, you are asking in trust-like wonder, and just how will this be, Lord? Only those who trust in a loving God who brings life where there is no life, who keeps his promises no matter how long it takes, will be filled with wonder at how he will accomplish his will with whom all things are possible. Do you trust his love enough to say, let it be done in my life just as you wish? To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.